Section thirty of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The dictionary, we may believe, afforded Johnson full occupation this year. As it approached to its conclusion, he probably worked with redoubled vigour, as seamen increase their exertion and alacrity when they have a near prospect of their haven. Lord Chesterfield's Neglect Lord Chesterfield, to whom Johnson had paid the high compliment of addressing to his lordship the plan of his dictionary, had behaved to him in such a manner as to excite his contempt and indignation. The world has been for many years amused with a story confidently told, and as confidently repeated with additional circumstances. Footnote. See Hawkins's Johnson, page 189 in a footnote, that a sudden disgust was taken by Johnson upon occasion of his having been one day kept long in waiting in his lordship's antechamber, for which the reason assigned was that he had company with him, and that at last, when the door opened, out walked Colley Cibber, and that Johnson was so violently provoked when he found for whom he had been so long excluded, that he went away in a passion, and never would return. I remember having mentioned this story to George Lord Littleton, who told me he was very intimate with Lord Chesterfield, and, holding it as a well-known truth, defended Lord Chesterfield by saying that Sibber, who had been introduced familiarly by the back stairs, had probably not been there above ten minutes. It may seem strange even to entertain a doubt concerning a story so long and so widely current, and thus implicitly adopted, if not sanctioned, by the authority which I have mentioned. But Johnson himself assured me that there was not the least foundation for it. He told me that there never was any particular incident which produced a quarrel between Lord Chesterfield and him, but that his lordship's continued neglect was the reason why he resolved to have no connection with him. Footnote. Lord Chesterfield, writing to his son in 1751, Letters, Volume 3, Number 136, said, People in high life are hardened to the wants and distresses of mankind, as surgeons are to their bodily pains. They see and hear of them all day long, and even of so many simulated ones that they do not know which are real and which are not. Other sentiments are therefore to be applied to than those of mere justice and humanity. Their favour must be captivated by the suaviter in modo, their love of ease disturbed by unwearied importunity, or their fears wrought upon by a decent intimation of implacable cool resentment. This is the true fortiter in re. He was himself to experience an instance of the true fortiter in re. End of footnote. When the dictionary was upon the eve of publication, Lord Chesterfield, who, it is said, had flattered himself with expectations that Johnson would dedicate the work to him, footnote, 
if lord chesterfield had read the last number of the rambler published in march seventeen fifty two he could scarcely have flattered himself with these expectations johnson after saying that he would not endeavour to overbear the censures of criticism by the influence of a patron added the supplications of an author never yet reprieved him a moment from oblivion and though greatness sometimes sheltered guilt it can afford no protection to ignorance or dullness having hitherto attempted only the propagation of truth i will not at last violate it by the confession of terrors which i do not feel having laboured to maintain the dignity of virtue i will not now degrade it by the meanness of dedication End of footnote. flattered himself with the expectation that johnson would dedicate the work to him attempted in a courtly manner to soothe and insinuate himself with the sage conscious as it would seem of the cold indifference with which he had treated its learned author and further attempted to conciliate him by writing two papers in the world in recommendation of the work footnote on november the twenty eighth and december the fifth seventeen fifty four the world by adam fitzadam january seventeen fifty three to december seventeen sixty five the editor was edward moore among the contributors were the earls of chesterfield and cork horace walpole r o cambridge and son jenny sea post july the first seventeen sixty three and a footnote and it must be confessed that they contain some studied compliments so finely turned that if there had been no previous offence it is probable that johnson would have been highly delighted Footnote. with these papers as a whole johnson would have been highly offended the anonymous writer hopes that his readers will not suspect him of being a hired and interested puff of this work i most solemnly protest he goes on to say that neither mr johnson nor any booksellers have ever offered me the usual compliment of a pair of gloves or a bottle of wine it is a pretty piece of irony for a wealthy nobleman solemnly to protest that he has not been bribed by a poor author whom seven years before he had repulsed from his door but chesterfield did worse than this by way of recommending a work of so much learning and so much labour he tells a foolish story of an assignation that had failed between a fine gentleman and a fine lady the letter that had passed between them had been badly spelt and they had gone to different houses such examples he wrote really make one tremble and will i am convinced determine my fair fellow-subjects and their adherents to adopt and scrupulously conform to mr johnson's rules of true orthography johnson in the last year of his life at a time of great weakness and depression defended the roughness of his manner i have done more good as i am obscenity and impiety have always been repressed in my company post june eleventh seventeen eighty four in the footnote 
Lord Chesterfield's Flattery, Eitart 45. Praise in general was pleasing to him, but by praise from a man of rank and elegant accomplishments he was peculiarly gratified. His lordship says, I think the public in general, and the republic of letters in particular, are greatly obliged to Mr. Johnson for having undertaken and executed so great and desirable a work. Perfection is not to be expected from man, but if we are to judge by the various works of Johnson already published, footnote, in the original Mr. Johnson, we have good reason to believe that he will bring this as near to perfection as any man could do. The plan of it, which he published some years ago, seems to me to be a proof of it. Nothing can be more rationally imagined or more accurately and elegantly expressed. I therefore recommend the previous perusal of it to all those who intend to buy the dictionary, and who, I suppose, are all those who can afford it. It must be owned that our language is at present in a state of anarchy, and hitherto, perhaps, it may not have been the worse for it. During our free and open trade, many words and expressions have been imported, adopted, and naturalized from other languages, which have greatly enriched our own. Let it still preserve what real strength and beauty it may have borrowed from others, but let it not like the Tarpeian maid, be overwhelmed and crushed by unnecessary ornaments. Footnote. In the original, unnecessary foreign ornaments. End of footnote. The time for discrimination seems to be now come. Toleration, adoption, and naturalization have run their lengths. Good order and authority are now necessary but where shall we find them, and, at the same time, the obedience due to them? We must have recourse to the old Roman expedient in times of confusion, and choose a dictator. Upon this principle I give my vote for Mr. Johnson to fill that great and arduous post, and I hereby declare that I make a total surrender of all my rights and privileges in the English language, as a free-born British subject, to the said Mr. Johnson during the term of his dictatorship. Nay more, I will not only obey him like an old Roman as my dictator, but like a modern Roman I will implicitly believe in him as my Pope, and hold him to be infallible while in the chair, but no longer. More than this he cannot well require, for I presume that, Obedience can never be expected where there is neither terror to enforce nor interest to invite it. But a grammar, a dictionary, and a history of our language through its several stages were still wanting at home, and importunately called for from abroad. Mr. Johnson's neighbours will now, I dare say, very fully supply that want. Footnote in the original will now, and I dare say very fully, end a footnote, and greatly contribute to the farther spreading of our language in other countries. Learners were discouraged by finding no standard to resort to, 
and consequently thought it incapable of any. They will now be undeceived and encouraged. This courtly device failed of its effect. Footnote. Hawkins, Life, page 191, says that Chesterfield, further to appease Johnson, sent to him Sir Thomas Robinson, see post, July the 19th, 1763, who was to apologise for his lordship's treatment of him and to make him tenders of his future friendship and patronage. Sir Thomas, whose talent was flattery, was profuse in his commendations of Johnson and his writings, and declared that, for his circumstances other than they were, himself would settle five hundred pounds a year on him. And who are you? asked Johnson, that talk thus liberally. I am, said the other, Sir Thomas Robinson, a Yorkshire baronet. Sir, replied Johnson, if the first peer of the realm were to make me such an offer, I would show him the way downstairs. End of footnote. Johnson, who thought that all was false and hollow, footnote, Paradise Lost, Book 2, line 112, end of footnote, despised the honeyed words, and was even indignant that Lord Chesterfield should for a moment imagine that he could be the dupe of such an artifice. His expression to me concerning Lord Chesterfield upon this occasion was, Sir, after making great professions. Footnote. Johnson, perhaps, was thinking of his interviews with Chesterfield when, in his rambler on the mischiefs of following a patron, number 163, he wrote, If you, Mr. Rambler, had ever ventured your philosophy within the attraction of greatness, you know the force of such language, introduced with a smile of gracious tenderness, and impressed at the conclusion with an air of solemn sincerity. End of footnote. After making great professions, he had for many years taken no notice of me. But when my dictionary was coming out, he fell a-scribbling in the world about it upon which I wrote him a letter, expressed in civil terms, but such as might show him that I did not mind what he said or wrote, and that I had done with him. Footnote. Johnson said to Garrick, I have sailed a long and painful voyage round the world of the English language. Does he now send out two cock-boats to tow me into harbour? Murphy's Johnson, page 74. This metaphor may perhaps have been suggested to Johnson by Warburton. I now begin to see land, after having wandered, according to Mr. Warburton's phrase, in this vast sea of words, post February the 1st, 1755, into footnote. Johnson's Spelling, Anno Domini, 1754. This is that celebrated letter of which so much has been said, and about which curiosity has been so long excited without being gratified. I had for many years solicited Johnson to favour me with a copy of it. Footnote. See post November the 22nd, 1779, and April the 8th, 1780. 
sir henry ellis says that address in johnson's own copy of his letter to lord chesterfield is spelt twice with one d croker's correspondence volume two page forty four in the series of letters by johnson given in notes and queries sixth series volume five johnson writes pursuit p e r s u i t i cannot but b u w t to retain counsel c o u n c i l harassed h a w r a w c d imbecility i m b e c i w l i t y in a letter to nichols quoted by me post beginning of seventeen eighty three he writes illness i l n e w s he commonly perhaps always spelt boswell b o s w e l and nichols's name in one series of letters he spelt nichols n i c h o l s n i c h o l and n i c o l post beginning of seventeen eighty one note end of footnote that so excellent a composition might not be lost to posterity he delayed from time to time to give it to me dr johnson appeared to have had a remarkable delicacy with respect to the circulation of this letter for dr douglas bishop of salisbury informs me that having many years ago pressed him to be allowed to read it to the second lord hardwick who was very desirous to hear it promising at the same time that no copy of it should be taken johnson seemed much pleased that it had attracted the attention of a nobleman of such a respectable character but after pausing some time declined to comply with the request saying with a smile no sir i have hurt the dog too much already all words to that purpose boswell End of footnote. till at last in seventeen eighty one when we were on a visit at mr dilly's at south hill in bedfordshire he was pleased to dictate it to me from memory he afterwards found among his papers a copy of it which he had dictated to mr baretti with its title and corrections in his own handwriting this he gave to mr langton adding that if it were to come into print he wished it to be from that copy by mr langton's kindness i am enabled to enrich my work with a perfect transcript of what the world has so eagerly desired to see footnote in seventeen ninety the year before the life of johnson came out boswell published this letter in a separate sheet of four quarto pages under the following title the celebrated letter from samuel johnson doctor of laws to philip dormer stanhope earl of chesterfield now first published with notes by james boswell esq london printed by henry baldwin for charles dilly in the poultry seventeen ninety price half a guinea entered in the hall book of the company of stationers it belongs to the same impression as the life of johnson End of footnote. johnson's letter to lord chesterfield i tart forty five to the right honourable the earl of chesterfield february the seventh seventeen fifty five my lord i have been lately informed by the proprietor of the world that two papers in which my dictionary is recommended to the public were written by your lordship to be so distinguished is an honour which 
being very little accustomed to favours from the great, I know not well how to receive, or in what terms to acknowledge. When, upon some slight encouragement, I first visited your lordship, I was overpowered, like the rest of mankind, by the enchantment of your address, and could not forbear to wish that I might boast myself le vainqueur du vainqueur de la terre. Footnote. Je chante le vainqueur des vainqueurs de la terre. Voilà la poétique. Chant 3, 272. And a footnote. That I might obtain that regard for which I saw the world contending. But I found my attendance so little encouraged that neither pride nor modesty would suffer me to continue it. When I had once addressed your lordship in public, I had exhausted all the art of pleasing which a retired and uncourtly scholar can possess. I had done all that I could, and no man is well pleased to have his all neglected, be it ever so little. Seven years, my lord, have now passed since I waited in your outward rooms, or was repulsed from your door during which time I have been pushing on my work through difficulties of which it is useless to complain, and have brought it at last to the verge of publication without one act of assistance, one word of encouragement, or one smile of favour. Such treatment I did not expect, for I never had a patron before. The shepherd in Virgil grew at last acquainted with love, and found him a native of the rocks. Footnote. The following note is subjoined by Mr. Langton. Dr. Johnson, when he gave me this copy of his letter, desired that I would annex to it his information to me that, whereas it is said in the letter that no assistance has been received, he did once received from Lord Chesterfield the sum of ten pounds. But as that was so inconsiderable a sum, he thought the mention of it could not properly find place in a letter of the kind that this was, Boswell. This surely is an unsatisfactory excuse, writes Mr. Croker. He read Dr. Johnson's letter carelessly, as the rest of his note shows. Johnson says, that during the seven years that had passed since he was repulsed from Chesterfield's door, he had pushed on his work without one act of assistance. These ten pounds, we may feel sure, had been received before the seven years began to run. No doubt they had been given in 1747 as an acknowledgement of the compliment paid to Chesterfield in the plan. He had at first been misled by Chesterfield's one act of kindness, but he had long had his eyes opened. Like the shepherd in Virgil, 8th Eclogue, line 43, he could say, Nunc scio quid sit amor. End of footnote. Is not a patron, my lord, one who looks with unconcern on a man struggling for life in the water, and when he has reached ground, encumbers him with help. 
the notice would you have been pleased to take of my labours had it been early had been kind but it has been delayed till i am indifferent and cannot enjoy it till i am solitary and cannot impart it till i am known and do not want it Footnote. in this passage dr johnson evidently alludes to the loss of his wife we find the same tender recollection recurring to his mind upon innumerable occasions and perhaps no man ever more forcibly felt the truth of the sentiment so elegantly expressed by my friend mr malone in his prologue to mr jeffson's tragedy of julia julia or the italian lover was active for the first time on april seventeen seventeen eighty seven vain wealth and fame and fortune's fostering care if no fond breast the splendid blessing share and each day's bustling pageantry once past there only there our bliss is found at last possible three years earlier when his wife was dying he had written in one of the last ramblers number two hundred and three it is necessary to the completion of every good that it be timely obtained for whatever comes at the close of life will come too late to give much delight what we acquire by bravery or science by mental or corporal diligence comes at last when we cannot communicate and therefore cannot enjoy it chesterfield himself was in no happy state less than a month before he received johnson's letter he wrote works volume three page three o eight for these six months past it seems as if all the complaints that ever attacked heads had joined to overpower mine continual noises headache giddiness and impenetrable deafness i could not stoop to write and even reading the only resource of the deaf was painful to me he wrote to his son a year earlier letters volume four forty three reading which was always a pleasure to me in the time even of my greatest dissipation is now become my only refuge and i fear i indulge it too much at the expense of my eyes but what can i do i must do something i cannot bear absolute idleness my ears grow every day more useless to me my eyes consequently more necessary i will not hoard them like a miser but would rather risk the loss than not enjoy the use of them End of footnote. i hope it is no very cynical asperity not to confess obligations where no benefit has been received or to be unwilling that the public should consider me as owing that to a patron which providence has enabled me to do for myself having carried on my work thus far with so little obligation to any favourer of learning i shall not be disappointed though i should conclude it if less be possible with less for i have been long wakened from that dream of hope in which i once boasted myself with so much exultation my lord your lordship's most humble most obedient servant samuel johnson
Footnotes. The English dictionary was written with little assistance of the learned and without any patronage of the great, not in the soft obscurities of retirement or under the shelter of academic bowers, but amidst inconvenience and distraction, in sickness and in sorrow. Johnson's Works, Volume 5, page 51. Upon comparing this copy with that which Dr. Johnson dictated to me from recollection, the variations are found to be so slight that this must be added to the many other proofs which he gave of the wonderful extent and accuracy of his memory. To gratify the curious in composition, I have deposited both the copies in the British Museum. Boswell, end of footnotes. His high opinion of Warburton, Itart forty five. While this was the talk of the town, says Dr. Adams in a letter to me, I happened to visit Dr. Warburton, who, finding that I was acquainted with Johnson, desired me earnestly to carry his compliments to him, and to tell him that he honoured him for his manly behaviour in rejecting these condescensions of Lord Chesterfield and for resenting the treatment he had received from him with a proper spirit. Johnson was visibly pleased with this compliment, for he had always a high opinion of Warburton. Footnote. Soon after Edwards's Canons of Criticism came out, Johnson was dining at Tonson the booksellers with Heyman the painter and some more company. Heyman related to Sir Joshua Reynolds that the conversation having turned upon Edwards's book, the gentleman praised it much, and Johnson allowed its merit. But when they went farther, and appeared to put that author upon a level with Warburton, nay, said Johnson, he has given him some smart hits, to be sure, but there is no proportion between the two men, they must not be named together. A fly, sir, may sting a stately horse and make him wince, but one is but an insect, and the other is a horse still. Boswell. Johnson, in his preface to Shakespeare, works, volume 5, page 141, wrote, Dr. Warburton's chief assailants are the authors of The Canons of Criticism, and of the revisal of Shakespeare's text. The one stings like a fly, sucks a little blood, takes a gay flutter, and returns for more. The other bites like a viper. When I think on one with his confederates, I remember the danger of Coriolanus, who was afraid that girls with spits and boys with stones should slay him in puny battle. When the other crosses my imagination, I remember the prodigy in Macbeth. A falcon towering in his pride of place was by a mousing owl hawked at and killed. Let me, however, do them justice. One is a wit, and one a scholar. End of footnote. Indeed, the force of mind which appeared in this letter was congenial with that which Warburton himself amply possessed. 
to johnson might be applied what he himself said of dryden he appears to have known in its whole extent the dignity of his character and to have set a very high value on his own powers and performances works volume seven page two nine one into footnote for garrett read patron anno domini seventeen fifty four there is a curious minute circumstance which struck me in comparing the various editions of johnson's imitations of juvenile in the tenth satire one of the couplets upon the vanity of wishes even for literary distinction stood thus yet think what ills the scholar's life assail pride envy want the garret and the jail Footnote. in the original yet mark what ills the scholar's life assail toil envy want the garret and the jail in a footnote but after experiencing the uneasiness which lord chesterfield's fallacious patronage made him feel he dismissed the word garret from the sad group and in all the subsequent editions the line stands pride envy want the patron and the jail footnote in his dictionary he defined patron as commonly a wretch who supports with insolence and is paid with flattery this definition disappears in the abridgment but remains in the fourth edition in a footnote defence of pride itart forty five that lord chesterfield must have been mortified by the lofty contempt and polite yet keen satire with which johnson exhibited him to himself in this letter it is impossible to doubt he however with that glossy duplicity which was his constant study affected to be quite unconcerned dr adams mentioned to mr robert dodsley that he was sorry johnson had written his letter to lord chesterfield Dodsley, with the true feelings of trade, said he was very sorry too, for that he had a property in the dictionary to which his lordship's patronage might have been of consequence. He then told Dr. Adams that Lord Chesterfield had shown him the letter. I should have imagined, replied Dr. Adams, that Lord Chesterfield would have concealed it. Oh, said Dodsley do you think a letter from johnson could hurt lord chesterfield not at all sir it lay upon his table where anybody might see it he read it to me said this man has great powers pointed out the severest passages and observed how well they were expressed this air of indifference which imposed upon the worthy dobsley was certainly nothing but a specimen of that dissimulation which lord chesterfield inculcated as one of the most essential lessons for the conduct of life Footnote. chesterfield when he read johnson's letter to dodsley was acting up to the advice that he had given his own son six years earlier letters volume two one seven two when things of this kind in square brackets bon mot happen to be said of you the most prudent way is to seem not to suppose that they are meant at you but to dissemble 
and conceal whatever degree of anger you may feel inwardly and should they be so plain that you cannot be supposed ignorant of their meaning so join in the laugh of the company against yourself acknowledge the hit to be a fair one and the jest a good one and play off the whole thing in seeming good humour but by no means reply in the same way which only shows that you are hurt and publishes the victory which you might have concealed in a footnote his lordship endeavoured to justify himself to dodsley from the charges brought against him by johnson but we may judge of the flimsiness of his defence from his having excused his neglect of johnson by saying that he had heard he had changed his lodgings and did not know where he lived as if there could have been the smallest difficulty to inform himself of that circumstance by inquiring in the literary circle with which his lordship was well acquainted and was indeed himself one of its ornaments dr adams expostulated with johnson and suggested that his not being admitted when he called on him was probably not to be imputed to lord chesterfield for his lordship had declared to dodsley that he would have turned off the best servant he ever had if he had known that he denied him to a man who would have been always more than welcome and in confirmation of this he insisted on lord chesterfield's general affability and easiness of access especially to literary men sir said johnson that is not lord chesterfield he is the proudest man this day existing footnote see post march the twenty third seventeen eighty three where johnson said that lord chesterfield was dignified but he was insolent and june the twenty seventh seventeen eighty four where he said that his manner was exquisitely elegant End of footnote no said dr adams there is one person at least as proud i think by your own account you are the prouder man of the two but mine replied johnson instantly was defensive pride this as dr adams well observed was one of those happy turns for which he was so remarkably ready a wit among lords anno domini seventeen fifty four johnson having now explicitly avowed his opinion of lord chesterfield did not refrain from expressing himself concerning that nobleman with pointed freedom this man said he i thought had been a lord among wits but i find he is only a wit among lords Footnote. What air of mongrel no one class admits a wit with dunces and a dunce with wits pope's dunciad book four line ninety a true choice spirit we admit with wits a fool with fools a wit churchill's dualist book three the solemn fop significant and budge a fool with judges amongst fools a judge Cooper's Poems, Conversation Book, one line two hundred ninety-nine. According to Rebecca Warner, Original Letters, page two hundred four, 
johnson telling joseph folk about his refusal to dedicate his dictionary to chesterfield said sir i found i must have gilded a rotten post End of footnote. and when his letters to his natural son were published he observed that they teach the morals of a whore and the manners of a dancing-master that collection of letters cannot be vindicated from the serious charge of encouraging in some passages one of the vices most destructive to the good order and comfort of society which his lordship represents as mere fashionable gallantry and in others of inculcating the base practice of dissimulation and recommending with disproportionate anxiety a perpetual attention to external elegance of manners but it must at the same time be allowed that they contain many good precepts of conduct and much genuine information upon life and manners very happily expressed and that there was considerable merit in paying so much attention to the improvement of one who was dependent upon his lordship's protection it has probably been exceeded in no instance by the most exemplary parent and though i can by no means approve of confounding the distinction between lawful and illicit offspring which is in effect insulting the civil establishment of our country to look no higher i cannot help thinking it laudable to be kindly attentive to those whose existence we have in any way been the cause mr stanhope's character has been unjustly represented as diametrically opposite to what lord chesterfield wished him to be he has been called dull gross and awkward but i knew him at dresden when he was envoy to that court and though he could not boast of the graces he was in truth a sensible civil well-behaved man boswell see post march the twenty eighth seventeen seventy five and April the twenty ninth, seventeen seventy six, and June the twenty seventh, seventeen eighty four, into footnote. Chesterfield's respectable Hottentot, I forty five. The character of a respectable Hottentot in Lord Chesterfield's letters, volume three, one two nine, has been generally understood to be meant for Johnson, and I have no doubt that it was but i remember when the literary property of those letters was contested in the court of session in scotland and mr henry dundas footnote, now one of his majesty's principal secretaries of state boswell afterwards viscount melville end of footnote, one of the counsel for the proprietors read this character as an exhibition of johnson sir david dalrymple lord hales one of the judges maintained with some warmth that it was not intended as a portrait of johnson but of a late noble lord distinguished for abstruse science footnote probably george second earl of macclesfield who was in seventeen fifty two elected president of the royal society croker horace walpole letters volume two three two one mentions him as engaged to a party for finding out the longitude End of footnote. I have heard Johnson himself talk of the character, 
and say that it was meant for George Lord Littleton, in which I could by no means agree, for his lordship had nothing of that violence which is a conspicuous feature in the composition. Finding that my illustrious friend could bear to have it supposed that it might be meant for him, I said laughingly that there was one tray which unquestionably did not belong to him. He throws his meat anywhere but down his throat. Sir, said he, Lord Chesterfield never saw me eat in his life. Footnote. In another work, Dr. Johnson, his friends and his critics, page 214, I have shown that Lord Chesterfield's respectable Hottentot was not Johnson. From the beginning of 1748 to the end of 1754, Chesterfield had no dealings of any kind with Johnson. At no time had there been the slightest intimacy between the great nobleman and the poor author. Chesterfield had never seen Johnson eat. The letter in which the character is drawn opens with the epigram Non amo te sabidi nec possum dicere quare hoc tantum possum dicere non amo te. Chesterfield goes on to show how it is possible not to love anybody and yet not to know the reason why. How often, he says, have I in the course of my life found myself in this situation with regard to many of my acquaintance whom I have honoured and respected without being able to love. He then instances the case of a man whom he describes as a respectable Hottentot. It is clear that he is writing of a man whom he knows well and who has some claim upon his affection. Twice he says that it is impossible to love him. The date of this letter is February the 28th, 1751, more than three years after Johnson had for the last time waited in Chesterfield's outward rooms. Moreover, the same man is described in three other letters, September the 22nd, 1749, November 1749 and May the 27th, 1753 and described as one with whom Chesterfield lived on terms of intimacy. In the two former of these letters he is called Mr. L. Littleton did not become Sir George Littleton till September the 14th, 1751. He was raised to the peerage in 1757. Horace Walpole, Reign of George III, Volume 1, page 256, says of him, His ignorance of mankind, want of judgment, strange absence and awkwardnesses, involved him in mistakes and ridicule. Had Chesterfield's letter been published when it was written, no one in all likelihood would have so much as dreamt that Johnson was aimed at, but it did not come before the world till twenty-three years later, when Johnson's quarrel with Chesterfield was known to everyone, when Johnson himself was at the very head of the literary world, and when his peculiarities had become a matter of general interest. End of footnote. End of section thirty.